Pride Nation 101. You have just stumbled onto Pride Nation 101. Queer music, stories, opinions, and lives from Mendocino County and beyond. I'm Roland Corey Medina. And I'm Chad Swimmer. Welcome. We're going to have a great night tonight. And for you people in Florida, we're going to have a gay night. Gay, gay, gay. Yes, we are going to have one gay night. Probably not as exciting as the Oscars last week, though we had to include that little snippet of Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and Wanda Sykes giving Florida a happy and gay turkey roast. And hopefully also, Roland will not slap me like Will slapped Chris Rock, but it should still be a gay night in the old sense of the word and the new sense of the word. Tonight, we have a great show for you. Absolutely killer. Mm-hmm. We're going to be doing a body image segment, and we're speaking to Z Baron, bilingual educator and activist. And we have a Cliff Notes book review of Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers. Then we will talk to my dear old friend JW about what testing positive meant before coronavirus. Before COVID. So this is Pride Nation 101. Thank you for joining us. In today's news, new pictures have emerged of Trump and Putin canoodling in Moscow in 1987. A 29-year history of romantic texts between the two authoritarian homophobes was leaked by Ludmila Putina, Putin's ex-wife, who also announced at a surprise press conference her engagement to Ivanka Trump. This sizzling but unlikely lesbian romance was kindled after a rendezvous at Chamonix in the French Alps. April Fools! But unfortunately, we're going to have to address a bunch of bad news and maybe make good of it by giving you some option for doing something about it. We all know that there's a ridiculous number of anti-gay laws, anti-trans laws going through state legislators right now. We have one figure that says that over 100 bills attacking transgender people have been introduced in state legislators since 2020. Over 250 bills just attacking gay rights in general have been introduced since 2020. This is on top of what before there were nine states. And you can guess which states, but I'll tell you anyway. South Dakota, Utah, Arizona... Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and South Carolina. Nine states that as far back as 2014 had laws that weren't much different than Russia's anti-gay laws. And we know about Russia's freedom for gay people. We got a clip lineup. First up is Idaho, which would make it a felony for doctors to provide gender-affirming care, which can include medication, surgery, consult, and therapy for transgender kids. Mm. Up next is Texas. Greg Abbott wrote a letter saying that gender-affirming treatment constitutes child abuse. Can you believe that? Don't mess with Texas. Do not. They'll shoot you. Then we got Florida, which prevents LGBTQ plus education from being taught in schools. How dangerous is all of this? It's really hard. Really hard on people's mental health, we know. 
but we are offering you only one action item. Next month, hopefully, we'll have more, but something that you can do and that will hopefully improve your mental health about this whole situation is to send a postcard to the governor, Ron DeSantis, saying gay in rainbow colors. And say it out loud, I'm gay and I'm proud. That is Governor Ron DeSantis, state of Florida, the capital, 400 South Monroe Street, Tallahassee, Florida, T-A-L-L-A-H-A-S-S-E-E-F-L, 32399-0001. Say it out loud. Call me black magic woman, God me so blind I can't see. If I'm a black magic woman or the train. Today we set out to do a segment about body image, and of course it turned out to be about so much more. So we're going to be hearing from C. Varon, bilingual educator and activist, self-proclaimed fat, queer, non-binary, Chicana, femme, and mother. My name is Z. I am a queer, Chicana, fat-bodied human living in Oakland, California with my wife and now my daughter yeah. and two dogs. <laughs> say thank you so much for agreeing to meet with us (laughs) thank you for having me and what do you do for a living i'm a teacher i currently am teaching what they call transitional age so students who have dropped out of high school who are considered adults legally but are under 24 so it's technically at the adult school but i'm still dealing with a lot of teens and youth have you ever struggled to make yourself and your body, your presentation look the way you wanted? That is a lifelong challenge <laughs> in a Mexican household. Your body and how your body looks is much more important. Yeah. My dad is an orphan. He didn't fully grow up with like the machismo. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's very gentle and he has moved into everything like i mean case in point like i came out to my dad before to my mom and oh. my dad was like okay que quieres you know like, <laughs> yeah. like okay like con que estés feliz like it was not like did not bat an eye the man was just like whatever like you're still my daughter toxic masculinity wasn't as much present in my upbringing yeah my dad i remember him being kind of like a quote-unquote gentle giant when i was little which really just translated into a lot of stoicism as I got older, he called me hijo really early, talked to me about my transition, was very, maybe not was very accepting is the term to say, but he was definitely more on it than my mother <laughs> thinking about it. You know, like I have said this before and I stand by this statement. Women are the upholders of patriarchy. All of the isms, white supremacy, racism, you know, usually squared on cis women's shoulders because they are the ones who have who have been raising children um the way that children are traumatized and i think raised and abused in many in many um households often stems from a mother a mother wound whether a mom is super involved or not involved and the messages that they hand down to their children. Cause oftentimes the mothers are the ones who are expected to spend most time with the children. And so a lot of what we are hearing comes from our moms and you have like generations of wounded people walking around because their moms are wounded and their grandmothers are wounded. Like it's a generational trauma, but, but I feel that. 
Yeah, I know 100% where you're coming from. It's crazy thinking about it. Like, I have this very long lineage of women being so, yeah, wounded because their mothers were wounded, their grandmothers were wounded. It's, it's tough to break that cycle. Really tough. It's very humbling when you become a parent, if you become a parent. It's very humbling to dissect the triggers that you have. <laughs> Circling back to like where we started, like, wanting to change my body like in a Mexican household there are expectations of what you're supposed to look like there are expectations um, especially for for girl children um of how you're supposed to behave and how quickly you're supposed to grow up and I very early on was considered fat I was just considered big la gorda la gorda la gorda and in hindsight like looking at pictures of myself as a child I'm like De donde? Like I was such a like <laughs> scrawny child, but in comparison to my sisters who were scrawnier, I got the like, you're fat. And my mom also is la gorda in her family. And when you look at pictures of her at her heaviest, like there's a picture of her six months pregnant with me and she is a size nine, a size mm -hmm. nine, like you can't see the bump anywhere, but because her wow. sisters were both like a three and a two, she was huge. And that's like perspective. But when you're like a child and you're being told you're fat, you take on all of the negative connotations of what that word has in our society. By the time I was nine, my mom had me on slim fast. Like oh. I, my mom was trying to get me to lose weight actively when I was nine years old. And that was my life from nine to 13. I started my period at 10. So I started growing hips and growing boobs. And like, not only then was I fat, I had a curves to my body and I went to school. I went to a Catholic school where like 90% of the kids were Filipino. So they're all like stick skinny. And here I am with like, double D's by the time I'm 12. So yes, trying to change your body was like a lifelong thing for me that I really literally did not get over until 2013. And then like things didn't shift until, until I chose to have a relationship with my body that was more than trying to hide it, you know? Yeah. I feel like I've heard stories like that and found out that the person ended up developing eating disorders afterwards or like even just terrible relationships with their parents that's intense and i'm so sorry that you had to go through that go yeah on. i mean it's both right both and i i still am an, an emotional eater like i will still when i have intense days i will begin to crave what i call poverty food which is a whole another a whole another layer of my experience in life is i grew up food insecure um, we grew up very poor in Inglewood. So like one of the poorest towns in the country, we grew up like eating like pizza because it was the cheapest thing we could get. And when I have like really intense emotional days, even now I'll be like, I want pizza or I want a <laughs> Twinkie, but like, yeah. if I eat it, I feel gross. <laughs> but like when I have emotional days, I still cannot fully process that feeling it's what therapy's for now <laughs> but it's a thing yeah you know as somebody who i myself have had 
eating disorders. I spent 10 years struggling with bulimia. And just listening to you, it, it came together in my head what a messed up triangle this is of, you know, e- emotional eating and dealing with the fact that we're supposed to feel good about the eating and the food that comes from our parents and the love that comes with the food. And yet then we end up having an eating disorder and it is a real tough struggle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you ever used your body or your presentation as an act of rebellion? For example, when I was still in the closet, I would take (laughs) my dad's belt that he would wear around his stomach when he was lifting really heavy things at work. You know, like weightlifters tie that leather belt around themselves. I used it to bind my chest, and I remember thinking, yeah, this is going to piss my mom off. This is awesome. <laughs> or even shaving <laughs> my head without her knowing and wearing, a, like, a ball cap for the first couple of days, having her rip it off and, like, being annoyed that my head was now bald. Not actually. Buzzed. <laughs> those moments were really fun for me, even though they were very frustrating for everybody. Those were great for me. You know, like, my parents are very... In terms of Mexicans, like from the homeland, they're very forward and liberal. <laughs> but in terms of like where I live and like my my morals and the my uh, my life uh, decisions, they're very conservative. And so I have been straddling two worlds in many parts of my life from a very young age and trying to rebel. I would definitely rebel in very tiny ways. And my mom, so my mom is like half indigenous is the other part of it. Indigenous. She grew up on a reservation in Mexico until she was 11. And then she came to the U.S. when she was 16. So like for them, you're not supposed to cut your hair till you're 15. Hmm. Hasta oh. que eres señorita, right? So we all had really long hair uh, growing up. And my hair is really thick and I have a lot of it. And I would just get so frustrated and like, ma, when can I cut my hair? I'm you know, and she would just be like, no, no, no. And I was like, 11 and I was just over it and I literally took the scissors and I cut my hair and I have like the worst yearbook picture of like mushroom (laughs) hair because my hair is thick and curly and I'm so proud of myself because once it's cut what are you gonna do mom you can't clue it back on it it gave her a mini heart attack and uh like I I will never forget how mad she was like and then she was like your dad's gonna get mad and my dad was like oh okay as I got older and as I got more self-assured and really kind of found my own identity separate from my family, I began to rebel against <laughs> conservatism by having tattoos. And I have really large pieces like on my back, all my ankle, like all over my foot. I just think it was so funny that I could go visit for a whole week and they would not notice it at all. And then the last day I would be there, I'd be like, take off my shirt and have like this, like naked back. And my mom would be like, ah, Casey's it, you know, like you ruined your body. And I'll be like, oh yeah, I've had it for like a year and a half now, mom. Like, you know, she just, and yes, it was kind of satisfying to be like, he, 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 I did something that I wanted to do for myself that was not informed by your um, biases and her, her like reasons for me not getting tattoos is like well they're expensive and like they'll change your body forever and like that's the point 
but <laughs> but then also but then also you know she really wanted me to have a child and I'm like <laughs> she got so mad at me one time when she was really pushing for me to have a child I was like 26 and I was like mom son caros y me van a cambiar el cuerpo you know which are the same two <laughs> things that she told me for not getting a tattoo <laughs> like they'll change my body and they're very expensive and she was just like you know she just gets so mad and I'm her queer child I'm the child she doesn't know what to do with there are six of us and she's always like no sé qué hacer contigo Bomba Estéreo with Soy Yo, I Am Myself, This Is Me, and that was recommended by our guest, Z Barron, bilingual educator and activist. Thank you for tuning in to Pride Nation 101, queer music, voices, perspectives, and lives from Mendocino County and beyond. For those of you who don't speak Spanish, the two phrases that you're hearing a lot of are, ¿Qué hiciste? What have you done? And... ¿Qué voy a hacer contigo? What am I going to do with you? Did your mom ask you these things? In any case, let's go back to Z. I started trying to have a child five years ago. And Liliana's my fifth pregnancy, but she's my only live birth. So wow. I had four I had four miscarriages along the way. Oh, oh, and wow. uh, my mom had a really hard time with the last miscarriage I had because I was in the hospital for it. Um, it didn't come out on its own. I'd have two procedures. Like it was, it was a lot. It was very scary. When I got pregnant with Liliana, I didn't say anything to anybody. Like nobody knew. <laughs> and when I got the positive, I told Kate, I was like, if I'm still pregnant by Mother's Day, I will tell my mom. I'll believe that it's staying and I will tell my mom. <laughs> uh, May 10th, I drove down. I was like 25 weeks pregnant. And I was like, I'm having a baby. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> Wow. Uh, they were like ecstatic. Do you think that being in a queer relationship has been positive for your body image? You know, what's really interesting is being with someone who is female body, you know, because my wife, although I call her wife, pronouns are she, are she they, maybe like 90, 10, uh, they <laughs> identify as a woman. and But they did grow up. They were raised as a woman they were raised as a girl so they have a lot of body issues based on that upbringing and on that programming we met at the point in my life where i was like this is my body i'm gonna use it i'm gonna really live in it and i started weightlifting and so i was powerlifting, doing back squats and doing um deadlifts and so like my deadlifting personal record 320 pounds thank you very much uh, my back squat was 370 so Hi. like I was really in it like I was going to the gym every day and I never with all of that working out I never got tiny like my my frame is just not designed to be tiny the smallest I got at the peak of my working out seven days a week sometimes twice a week the smallest I got was a size 16 you know, and that's okay. I was at my healthiest. I was like running the lake. Like I was so happy and felt so good in my body for the first time in my life because of how good it felt to like lift heavy. 
And that's when I met Kate and Kate was also at their best, you know, in their body, they were running marathons and their chronic illness was not as present when we first met, like neither one of us really were having these like body dysmorphic issues. And now we've been together for nine years. And so like the way that things have shifted as our bodies have shifted, you know, I I had a major injury in 2016. I couldn't walk for three months. And so like, I couldn't work out. I couldn't lift anything. And the way your body hurts when you can't do something that makes it feel good is a thousand times worse. Um, And that really shifted how I felt about my body. And I was again, struggling with like, you know, again, eating disorders and like images of what I should be looking like, or having this memory of like, at this one point I felt really good and I no longer feel that way. Um, and Kate was really supportive of like, well, how, how can we introduce movement in ways that you can move and that can make you feel good, but becoming a parent really makes you rethink the things that come out of your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> um, <for> sure. <laughs> Cause we have a female child, right. And we don't know what she's going to identify as, but I want her to have a good relationship with her body because neither one of us did. And so making sure we don't say things like I feel fat because fat is not a feeling. Do you think that you are now seeing yourself in a positive light? A lot more so than I ever have in my life. Thank you, therapy. Um, (laughs) But also... You know, this year has been a struggle because I was pregnant and, um, you know, fat phobia is real in our medical industry and the way that I was treated during pregnancy was really triggering because they just didn't expect me to be as healthy as I was. And when things were not going well, I really had to fight and Kate had to fight for them to listen to me and believe me. And then I began to blame myself. Like, is it just because I'm big because I'm fat that they're like not listening to me. And it took me time to like process that and be like, no, this is just the way the medical system is designed, (laughs) designed to kill people that are seemed undesirable uh, in our society, whether that means that they're disabled or they're fat or they're black, you know, like our medical industrial complex is designed to kill specific types of people, gay men etc. And so I was just coded as one of those populations that is not as important. But it was very triggering. And I did have feelings about how how large I got when I was pregnant, which was hard because I thought I was over that. (laughs) And I had to like, remind myself, like, you have a whole ass other person inside of you. (laughs) (laughs) You have created a whole other organ out of nothing um, on top of the organs of your child, you know, and, and it it required a lot of reparenting of myself of like, okay, estas bien, you know, like, this is not your problem. It's, it's the world's issue. And, And more specifically, it's the U.S.'s issue of how they treat bodies like mine in this country. You mentioned that you found a Hispanic woman doctor who really helped you a lot and you really bonded with her. Can you talk about that? I had a lot of chronic pain after having her. There were complications with her birth. I had C-section, C-section got infected. I mean, all sorts of things that really had me bedridden for almost four months. And the doctor was talking to me and she was like, tell me about your, your diosa. Cause I had been telling her before that I had this like 
relationship with uh, goddesses. And she told me to tell her about them. So I was telling her about Yemaya and Oshun and Oja. And then I was like, oh, and then Tonantzin, which you know as Guadalupe. And she like giggled a little bit. And she's like, yeah, that's really beautiful. And I remember her talking to me about like Pan-African diaspora, like all these things as I'm literally dying. <laughs> like as they're literally like my blood is draining for me. I have no idea. Um, and I came out okay. But I found out later that that doctor's name is Emilia Guadalupe. And she always wears uh, socks de la Virgen de Guadalupe. <laughs> and because um, she like, after my surgery, she was like checking up on me and she called me while I was in the hospital and she sent me an email. And I remember telling the Virgen like, I didn't bring anything of yours. No traigo tu, you know, I didn't have a pulsera or anything of hers. I was like, be, be with me, you know, ayúdenme. And she was there. She was, she was there. She was so cool. Nice. Um, and it was really beautiful. Well, sure. So <laughs> I would definitely not be alive. No. Um, if it weren't for Western, like, you know, surgery and like, you know, infusions of blood, I would definitely not be here, which is really wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm praying yeah. to the, the goddess of insulina. <laughs> <laughs> Gracias, Diosa. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up with Guadalupe, but I also grew up with Yemoya and Oshun, mm -hmm. who I are also Virgen de Caída de Cobre, one of them. I don't know who the other one is, um, but same. They have like Catholic saints attached to them, but I didn't grow up with those names. I grew up with Yemoya and I grew up with Oshun. And I did not know until, again, I was in college that those are not Mexican deities, that they are like Caribbean, Cuban, like, you know, other parts of the world, you know, really worship them and go hard for these um, Orishas. I didn't know that, you know, and, and it's kind of beautiful in terms of like how the diaspora has spread and how ideas spread. I had no idea. But you said you were still in a lot of pain and you did a ceremony that helped that out. Everything hurt. And when your body hurts, you hate your body. And so I was really like angry at my body. I was very like, you know, disappointed in my body. I cried about my body. I was like wishing it looked different, wishing it could function differently. Um, and that was hard uh, to, to feel that way and be sleep deprived and not be able to move and also be nursing a baby and like all of these factors. And it really took, honestly, I had a cerrada, like a, a ceremony to like close my hips out after birth. And it's a spiritual ceremony. And after the cerrada, it shifted my energy again. It shifted how I felt about myself. Um, I was able to like take a shower and like thank my body for growing my daughter, you know, who was like this amazing, beautiful human and it shifted and I began to apologize to my body for being mad at her and mm. thanking her for even getting me this far as much you know and then like I had to promise my body that I was going to be gentle it's not easy you know having a child and it's not easy um going through all these complications and I had to really stop and like appreciate 
what she's done for me. And, and in many ways, I think my relationship with my body has turned from one of like, oh, you're doing bad things to me. You're horrible. You know, I hate you To I have started to look at my body very much as like, this is the vessel that I'm in, in this lifetime. And it's separate from my spirit and who I am. And it is where I'm living right now. It's not where I'm going to live forever. I firmly believe your spirits, you know, reincarnate, but in this lifetime right now, this is a body that I have and I need to be grateful for it, for everything it's done for me and everything it keeps doing for me. Like, and if I reframe it that way, when I start getting upset about its limitations, it helps me. That was Z Barron, bilingual educator and activist, self-proclaimed fat, queer, non-binary, Chicana, femme, and mother. Rocking our world here. This is Pride Nation 101. So That was Bomba Stereo from Colombia. Soy yo. You have got to check out this video. It's great. Get ready. It is the Queer Coast Business Corner, helping you support your tribe. I'm speaking with Cynthia Sharon, owner of Dancing Dog Design and Build. Cynthia, how are you? I'm doing fine. So when did you found your business? I started my business, Dancing Dog Design Build, up here about 13 years ago. What can you tell us about it? Uh, it's a design build firm, so I have I'm licensed as a general contractor, so we build things, but I also design things. So we do everything from decks and additions to custom homes. I see right now you look like you're designing a house on your computer. Yep, this is next year's house. We're also um, about halfway through this year's house, which is an Albion 1,800-square-foot house with 1,000 square feet of decking. Um, board and batten that we milled from redwood trees from the property so pretty fun project oh wonderful wow have you found any particular challenges in being a queer business owner not queer at all um but being a woman definitely has had its challenges um I lived in the bay area for a number of years and worked for a company um where the boss was a straight white guy, didn't care if you were green, camouflage, brown, black, you know, whatever. He just hired good people. And that was pretty singular, um, pretty unusual. There were also a fair number of women in the trades in the Bay Area. Then I moved up here, and that is definitely not so much the case. But um, overall, it's been fine. You know, there are going to be people who don't hire you because you're a woman, just like there are going to be people who won't hire you because you're black or Latino or whatever. And I don't kind of just don't worry about it. There are other people like some women have been delighted to have a woman contractor because their assumption is they'll be heard more. Um, so, you know, it's I've been incredibly busy for usually have a waiting list of about a year or so. It just, it doesn't seem to have impacted me that much. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wanted you to build something for them, they'd have to get on the waiting list now, right? Yeah, no, that's true. But I think mm. that's true for most contractors up here. It's just, there's a real dearth of skilled labor. So if you have a pulse and can swing a hammer, you're probably busy. If you're good and you can swing a hammer, you're really busy. Yeah. Do you have a website? I do have a website, dancingdogdesignbuild.com. Yep. 
All right. Well, thanks for speaking with us. (laughs) My pleasure. I want to give a plug to this very time slot all through the month. This coming Friday night at 7 and every second and fourth Friday, tune in to Pride Radio Mendocino with Corporal Sin and Terry, an hour of music and news from Mendocino County's LGBTQIA community. Pride Radio Mendocino. Put on your dancing shoes and invite your friends over. On the third Friday of every month, we have Mendocino High School's KAKX student-powered radio as they take over the airwaves of KZYX with a music program that is almost as eclectic as the hosts. An hour's worth of musical show and tell hosted by Mendocino High School's own. The occasional fifth Friday, we have Wild Women, an intersectional feminist broadcast focused on contemporary and historical issues that specifically impact the lives of women with Alicia Bales and Lux Karpov. Their next show will be April 29th. And that brings us back to First Fridays at 7 p.m. Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Mendocino County and beyond. Fridays at 7 p.m. on KZYX are not to be missed. So, Chad, you've told me before that you're not a very avid reader, but you've had your face stuck in this book for a while. Want to tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, well, actually, I was a very avid reader when I was younger, but music kind of took its place and other things made it hard to find time to read. But I actually just finished this book called The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, and this is one of the best books I've read in many years. It takes place in 1985-86 Chicago as HIV AIDS is ravaging the, the, the city's gay community. And then 30 years later in Paris, and it goes back and forth. And it really, really brought up a lot of heavy duty emotions for me because I was first confronting my sexuality as the AIDS epidemic was really coming into being. And at first it was called the gay cancer and the gay flu and gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome. And then finally it became AIDS. Our president wouldn't even say the word. I was terrified to even think about being out. And I was also, I knew I was bi. And at that time, the the, the common wisdom was is that bisexual men were the, the vessel for this horrible plague to go from queers to straight people. And my first test was in 1987 or 8, but it's crazy because you had to wait two weeks for your results. And those were a really, really difficult two weeks. And I've had numerous HIV tests since then, and it has gotten progressively less scary for people like me in a country like this because now it's basically controllable. And if you have access to modern medicine, you can manage and live with this disease. But this is still a pandemic that's ravaging the world. For perspective, in 2020, about 37 million people worldwide were living with HIV. And in that year, 680,000 deaths occurred from HIV, most of these in Eastern and Southern Africa. Between the time that AIDS was first identified in the early 1980s and 2020, HIV has caused an estimated 36 million deaths worldwide. It is a pandemic and it continues. Oh my gosh, that is so 
intense and incomprehensible almost. I'm speechless. But I just have one question for you before we get to your interview with JW. Yeah. Would you say that this book changed you as a person and as a man after reading it for the first time? I don't know if it changed me. It just really, it, it reminded me of a lot of stress and a lot of emotion that I had in earlier times of my life. And, you know, I just, I drive through Fort Bragg and there's one corner and one house and I have been driving by that corner for a long time. And I remember, you know, Danny Ross passing away in that house, dying of AIDS, one of the great, great people in this community who contracted HIV in the eighties and died of it before it was a controllable disease. God bless you, Danny Ross. You are not forgotten, but many of us are survivors and we walked away and we carry you in our hearts. We are going to go now to an interview with my dear friend, JW. Thanks for being with us on Pride Nation tonight. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me, Chad. Ah, uh, you're so welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Where are you from? I am from Chicago, born and raised Chicago, Illinois, west side of the city, but I kind of grew up in a suburb called Oak Park, mm -hmm. a pretty well-known city. It actually um, is the home of Ernest Hemingway, Ray Kroc of McDonald's, Frank Lloyd Wright, famous architect. Yeah, Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. Yeah. So that's pretty much where I really grew up because we moved there when I was in the sixth grade. And so all of my friends today, um, old friends of mine that I've known for years, are from there as well. Was well, not perfect, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you first realize you were gay? You know, that to me is always a tricky question because I guess... I think to me, there's a, realizing that you're different and then realizing that there's a name for what the difference is. Mm -hmm. So I realized that I was kind of maybe different or was feeling a certain way, I guess, when I was three or four. I remember um, as a kid, I hated shoestrings tied. So I would always put my shoestrings inside of my shoe, like the end <laughs> of the string inside of my shoe. Because it reminded me of like the shoes that the girls would wear more that didn't have strings. And I just thought that was cool. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until about eight or nine, you know, when you start to hear people talk and express things. Um, and then you go, well, I kind of can identify with that. All right. Mm -hmm. Kind of feel that way. And then you realize that, you know, oh, I'm that perhaps. Because when you're young, you don't really know but you can surely identify, you can surely identify with um, the things around you. You're coming into yourself around that age and you start to come to some realizations. And so that was one of them for me that that was something about me that others are saying that isn't right, but I surely feel that way, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think I first learned the term gay probably about nine or 10 and first thought about it like gay or bi for myself at 11. Mm. I don't think they use the term gay or bi in our community. They, when I was a kid, it was, it was a, you were a sissy, a fag or a he, she, mm -hmm. you know, those are the terms that was used. Not so much gay. Yeah. And that, that came around at about high school, I think. Maybe yeah. junior high, junior high. Yeah. 
I heard the word fag faggot, unfortunately, a lot when I was yeah. very young. That was yeah, yeah. big in elementary school even. What a horrible thing. Mm -hmm. So did yeah. you come out to your parents? Well, this is the thing. I, I didn't have to come out to anybody. That's my whole take on the coming out. I didn't have to come out. I was always an effeminate boy. Always. I always played with girls and boys. Always. I always combed my grandmother's hair and painted her fingernails. Always. Mm -hmm. um, I did things like at eighth grade graduation, wanted to have my hair straightened and curled like super fly or, you know, that kind of thing. And my uncle and my dad just cringed, but that was what I wanted to do. So my grandmother being the loving woman she was, because that's who I was raised by, um, did what I wanted. So, and even kids in school that make a big to do about how I was acting. I mean, maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe they did when I think about it. Maybe they had some things to say. Um, but there was a period where I was trying to be more of a boy. You know, I remember when I did move to the suburbs and try to do the athletic things, but um, there was always an effeminate side to me, even just the way I dressed. So I don't think I needed to come out to people. I think realistically, people were just waiting the day to come that I would just be mm -hmm. what they probably assumed I was going to be. So yeah. when I did finally come out to my family and I was probably 25 years old, it was just a, literally a technicality. <laughs> yeah. It really was. It was just to make them clear that they were right. And that was the response given to me by my family was that, oh, well, we always knew we just hoped that maybe he would grow out of it because the world is such a hard place, you know, for black men and he's gay. So we just wanted him to live an easier life at a prom date. But <laughs> me and my very best friend, Michael Neighbors and I, you know, fabulous clothes, took a photo together. We were the only two guys to take a photo together. And we took the photo just as friends. But of course, the perception for others may have been, oh, they must be gay. You know, because this was 1982. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. And yeah, yeah. my situation, I was not obviously bi. And I was in my teens was when HIV and AIDS was really just starting to ravage the cities. And I was mortally afraid of coming out. And I was mortally afraid of HIV. I went, do you remember when you first became aware of HIV and AIDS? Uh, yes, I do. I remember sitting at sitting at a table before school had begun, and a friend of mine at the time, Tony Savage, always read the newspaper. He brought the paper. To, he was like the, the only kid. We were teenagers. He brought the paper to school with him every morning, and he read the paper at the lunchroom table. And the headline on the Sun-Times read, Gay Men Dying of Gay Flu. And this was like 19... I remember it was like 1981, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think we yeah. may have been juniors in high school. And I remember that headline, and I remember there was just enough talk about it at the table, but no one really got into it. Did it affect your young life after that? What happened was I, I was a junior in high school, so I was all over about 16. I don't think that I was one of those that was mortified by this. I think it was like, oh, wow. I think we knew to just try and play it safe. You know, 
I hadn't had any sexual encounters with a man, maybe one at the time. But yeah, I mean, I think that for anybody that was identifying at that time and was going to live the lifestyle and come out, it was one of those things where you basically knew, you know, you had to be careful, but it never, it wasn't like, oh my God, I can't go, I can't come out. Oh my God, I have to go in a closet or, oh my God, you know, people, it was like, no, I'm getting ready for college, you know, and I'm still going to meet guys and whatever. I don't think it started to have an effect until friends started to get sick. Mm-hmm. Friends of mine, close friends of mine, close friends of mine got sick early on, diagnosed with AIDS when there was nothing, no cure, nothing, AZT, which we know started, you know, it, it killed people more than it saved people. And so um, that's when I was like, oh, okay, wow. Okay, I, um, okay, um, yeah. And I'd already started having sex and acting out by that time, maybe four, five, six years had gone by, maybe a few more. Um, yeah. Just- so yeah, it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, as I as I grew into what I call a gay lifestyle. Now I'm in college. I'm a young adult. I'm living on my own. I'm going to clubs, going to the bathhouses, going to those places that you probably would should have been most people probably were you know but we were exploring we were experimenting we were living our lives yeah Um, yeah we need to take a moment out of this conversation to remind you that i'm roland and i'm chad from From pride Pride nation 101 kzox is moving to a bigger better building in ukiah Long story short, they need money. They need money. Call the office with your credit card handy, 707-895-2324. Or go to kzyx.org and press the red donate button. The red donate button now. Hey, how'd Chipmunk get in here? And today is the first day of the 30-day silent pledge drive. Trying to raise money for KZYX's new studio in Ukiah because there are more than chipmunks in the old studio in Philo, no matter how cool and sentimental and nostalgic the place is. Red, donate, button, now. KZWedge.org, thank you. Let's get back to our interview with JW. I think the one time, there was one time in particular when I think it hit me and two of my very best friends, one of them, Michael Neighbors, and the other was Curtis. And we were coming from a club and Michael was dropping us off. And I remember we walked into this restaurant late night. It was probably about two in the morning. We were maybe 18, 18 or 19. And this guy was in there and he was like a gangbanger type guy. And he looked at us and he made it clear. And he was, and his words were, don't be bringing that age up in here. And we looked at each other and that was the reality check for us. We were like, oh my, oh my. Okay. Yeah. But we grew up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we went out and about in a city that, you know, can be a rough city, you know, um, we had to fight boys yeah. coming up. 
did any of your your close friends pass away? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Stephen passed first, then Melvin, then Fitzgerald, then Ronnie Butler. Yeah, and then I moved. I moved and um, I left Chicago. I moved to California, and then after that, I mean, I'd known of quite a few people that, not necessarily close friends, but acquaintances, people I knew out at the club, people I just you know knew through other people. Um, just were dying, just were dying, you know. Mm-hmm. And then in San Francisco, we lost a dear friend, Frederick Floyd. And yeah, so yeah, quite a few people. Yeah, yeah. And when when you and I met, you were living in San Francisco. Yes. And I was working for Mendocino County Public Health, but San Francisco was really kind of shell-shocked. Right. When I got there, the city was starting to have a little bit, I won't call it a rebirth, but enough time had gone by where, especially San Francisco and New York, you know, they had lobbied and they had fought and they had marched and they were starting to get a different result. The medications were different. Um, people were starting to live with, we then know it as HIV more than AIDS, because first it was just AIDS. It mm-hmm. was just AIDS, you would die. Then it was more, you know, well, people are living now and numbers are changing and T-cells are going up and viral loads are going down and, you know, they're managing, you know, so, you know, we saw a different thing in the 90s. Even though we still were losing a lot of people, we saw it change in the 90s a bit. And then in 2000, you had the cocktail that came out, you know, and people start to really be able to manage. And if you were, you know, positive, you could get on a, you know, medication that would keep you from getting AIDS if you caught it soon enough, you know? So it was changing yeah. for a lot of us. You know, it was changing for a lot of us. So you didn't have to, you know, have AIDS necessarily. You could become positive and get on a regimen that would prevent you. And then you would learn what you needed to do. Yeah, yeah. And in those days, it was really interesting that, well, horrible, that um, AIDS was a diagnosis and HIV was... Uh, the infection. The infection, exactly. The, exactly. The actual diagnosis of AIDS was very politicized because you had yes. to get that diagnosis to get certain insurance benefits. Sure. And there were people who would die with HIV with never, never even receiving an AIDS diagnosis. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're right. You're right. So JW, yeah. you, you are HIV positive. Mm-hmm. When did you find out? 2003. 2003. Yeah, there were a number of things that started to happen to me physically. But I was like, I just don't feel right. Um, something's wrong. And I started to kind of wonder. Yeah. So 2003, there I was um, in a hospital. <laughs> Like, wow, what happened? How did this happen? Yeah. I told her, I said, I'm not dying. She's like, no. She says, you'll live a long, healthy life, but you need to see a doctor so that you can talk about what you need to do to live that life. And I was like, great. So I have a new way of living. Mm-hmm. She was like, what an attitude. And I was like, what are you going to do? You know, because I've known about this too long now to get into a place where I was like, oh, my God, how could this be happening to me? What did I? It's like, no. I was sober for a number of years, you know, 
I was able to, at that time, you know, deal with what was given to me. Now, I will tell you that I never got tested until the week before that. Never. Knowing that I had friends that died, the disease had been around for, what, 2022 decades and some change. Um, I'd been out most of that, actively out, gay male, you know, sexual, um, and never did. And I'll tell you, my friend told me to not get tested if I didn't think I could deal with that because I was more concerned at that time about staying sober. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that I'd gotten any kind of information that would have taken me in another direction. And he said, just take care of yourself and try to do things that you know would be safe. Um, and I said, that's what I'll do. Do I ever, I mean, maybe in the very beginning when I came home from that hospital, I may have had a couple of nights where I was, it was, it was kind of sad, but not sad, the situation sad, how it would land on people when I tell them that I'd have to tell people who were so near and dear to me, um, you being one of them, like how, you know, I mean, and I remember going through each person and there was only a few people that I felt needed to know because no one can cure this. And so not everyone even needs to know necessarily. But yeah, there were like a list of what, I think there was eight of you all. I think about like, yeah. You know, and I was like, yeah, I need to tell them. Um, but after I did that, I was so like, okay, relieved. I'm like, I mean, the responses that I received from everyone and especially you was so just warm and loving and caring. I was just like, okay, I chose the right people. <laughs> I've always looked at you as a very spiritual and emotionally resilient and inspiring person. Do you feel like your resilience, your emotional health is a lot of it attributable to being in recovery? Most of it. Yeah. I mean, I, even before getting into, it's funny, even before getting into recovery though, um, there was something, there was something. I mean, there was just something that was in me to know that that the world was my oyster and there was great possibilities. Even though I came from a very humble African-American family of very simple means and never have really taken it on as like a death sentence or I'm different than my fellows because of, you know, um, and I am fortunate to be around a group of people in recovery who are also positive. And we just, we make fun. We have, and it's, you know what I mean? It's like, we get it. We get it. And um, we are aware. And then when I got sober and, and, and even before getting sober, I remember. Oh, you are married. And I have to say, oh. I'm very thankful to have gone to the wedding in 2018 oh in Lahaina. Yes. And it was really a treat seeing you and your sweetheart dressed up identically in suits, wearing tennis shoes on the beach, and a clean and sober luau late into the night. However, I would like to ask how being HIV positive plays into being married. I had to do the work around that, and I had to come to a realization that I could not be in a relationship with anyone or married to someone 
that was not positive also. Because to me, for me, because I'm crazy, I could not imagine trying to balance, and I know some that have had it didn't work, being in a relationship with us, um, with someone that isn't, because that there's always that thing. Now, I think people have evolved, medications have evolved, people are on prep, pep, whatever they're doing to protect themselves and have, you know, all that is now on the scene. So there are ways that people can do it that weren't quite there when I started thinking about being in a relationship, like really being in a relationship. We are so unfortunately out of time. JW, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. But yeah, that's all I have. What a great time this has been. Definitely. definitely. Mr. Chad. Mr. JW. You don't have to edit anything, see, because it's all done. <laughs> we want to thank you for spending the last hour with us on Pride Nation 101. You can check us out at disquietmedia.blue. Email us at pridenation101radio at gmail.com. You can stream this from the archives of kzyx.org. We would like to thank Vivaron, Cynthia Sharon, and JW for being with us today. We would also like to mention that the views and opinions expressed by us and our guests are only ours and not those of the station or management or staff of KZYX. Pride Nation 101. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Oh,